Riverside Chats is sponsored by listeners like you. Pitch in to keep this podcast going strong, bringing you the unique perspectives, personalities, and topics you love. Click the listener support link in the podcast notes for this episode to learn more. From KIOS in Omaha, you're listening to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock, and today I'm talking with James Hahn Matson, author of the new book, Reprieve. I think Nebraska is spooky. I think like <laughs> I think a lot of the central Midwestern states, like Nebraska and Kansas, um, because you have like in Iowa, I would say, you have like these um, these long roads that have just, you know, cornfields for miles and miles and miles. And I think that's scary. I think that's spooky. I think that landscape in general is spooky. I mean, I grew up in North Dakota where we have wheat fields, but wheat fields are not the same as cornfields. Middle America, as far as like the middle, middle America, is, can be very spooky place. We talk about the appeal of horror fiction, how horror allows for an exploration of the ugly realities we live in, and how Matson's craft developed to tell his story. Stay tuned for that conversation after this break. Hi, and you're listening to Car Free Midwest. We're a podcast based in Omaha, Nebraska, exploring the stories, barriers, and joys of getting around the Midwest without a car. Our goal is to build a community around more transportation equity and less car dependency. I'm Sarah Johnson. And I'm Joshua LeBure. We'll be here every other week with interviews, topics, and documentary pieces covering all things transportation. And we'll be talking a lot about bikes, e-bikes, and cargo bikes, because once you get to know us, you'll find that that's what we're obsessed with. So subscribe to Car Free Midwest wherever you listen to podcasts. A production of Figure Podcasts. With support from Mode Shift Omaha. You're listening to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. Today I'm talking with James Hahn Madsen, author of the new novel Reprieve, a chilling and blisteringly relevant literary novel of social horror centered on a brutal killing that takes place in a full-contact haunted escape room, a provocative exploration of capitalism, hate politics, racial fetishism, and our obsession with fear as entertainment. Reprieve is available now wherever you get books, and Madsen will be doing an event for the book at Francie and Finch in Lincoln on October 29th. Here is our conversation. Well, so James, welcome to the show. Uh, I, I was we we kind of were trying to decide what would be a good Halloween related episode, but also that has some kind of Nebraska connection. And so it was perfect that you wrote this book where you, unlike most people who sort of make the Midwest this quirky, nice, funny place, you realize that it's actually very scary. Um, and so I, I, yeah, I mean, so just in terms of like Halloween and the horror and, uh, you know, your uh, approach to it, I've been watching a bunch of horror movies lately. It's kind of my excuse to watch a bunch of stuff that I would think I'm too good for in most of the year. But uh, I've been watching all the <laughs> Friday the 13th movies. Do you, do you have any uh, horror guilty pleasures you've been watching? Oh, you're, you're, you're watching all of them? Like, uh, yeah, I'm up like, to seven and they're terrible. Wow. <laughs> that, that takes some endurance. <laughs> um, yeah, have you, have but you, yeah, yes. I mean, I, I I like I like horror movies. Um, I guess I, I only I haven't really been watching a whole lot of horror lately. Uh, the last horror movie I think I watched uh, was VHS, which I, I which was like the third time I'd seen it because I think it's so scary. Um, have you? Do you know about the, the VHS movies? I'm aware of it, and I've seen some of the things that those guys have done after it, but I haven't actually watched VHS. Yeah, they're just they're just bizarre. I mean, uh, the first two, especially the third one's a little. Um, they're trying to make they're trying to do some sort of uh, linear narrative, which just didn't work for me. Um, but the first two are just so strange, and like they're it, it, they don't make any sense. And I sort of really love that about them. And I'm not really like a huge fan of found footage type stuff, but um, I just really, I mean, I really liked I really liked those movies. Well, and, uh, you know, right from the very beginning of Reprieve, you mentioned you name drop Pet Cemetery. I think, first as the first Stephen King one of, of several yeah. that get name dropped. Uh, so, I mean, how much did King factor into your development as a horror fan or writer? Oh, he was a huge, he was a huge factor. Um, I, he, I mean, I grew up, 
I grew up uh, reading him, uh, and it, it wasn't particularly for the horror, although the horror was always titillating. Um, but it was because he often showcased outsiders as like the main characters. So like the outsiders be, sort of became the heroes in a lot of his books. And that was really meaningful for me growing up as an Asian dude, like an awkward, you know, nerdy Asian dude in, in North Dakota. Um, just seeing that uh, sort of reflected in those books was really nice. Um, and so it wasn't, again, it wasn't really for the horror aspect of it so much as like just seeing these characters develop and like become heroes. Uh, but then after a while, you know, I started just really loving all of his books and I started really loving, you know, the gore and like the, the frights and all that stuff that came that came with his novels. Well, yeah, I mean, horror is kind of therapeutic in that way because it's almost like you, you do have an excuse to acknowledge a lot of heavy negative energy, but kind of in a, an adjacent way to whatever you're actually talking about, right? So, like, you know, you can you can talk about, you know, like Salem's Lot, it's a vampire story, but also it's about this horror of, like, small-town America in the same way. So, I mean, like, for you, did you was there a therapeutic element of just having kind of this excuse to go into these really negative stories? Yeah, I mean, I think horror can be pretty therapeutic. Um, and I think like one of the things was just like seeing, seeing, you know, uh, kind of nerdy people and like outsiders uh, reflected as like actual people with like, um, you know, with agency and like um, buried heroism, really. So yeah, that was really therapeutic, just seeing that. And then um, yeah, I mean, you talk about Salem's Lot. I mean, a lot. I think a lot of horror has like that dual. A lot of good horror, anyway, has has that dual meaning. I mean, it has um, you know the frights that are actually happening on the page, but then it also has like a commentary about um, you know maybe you know small time life, maybe like um, bullying. You know, uh, it, it, good horror, I think, um, uh, lifts up those those themes. Um, yeah, and I think Stephen King does a really good job of that. Well, he's kind of got this singular place where both the casual readers and the more intellectual readers can kind of get over some of the, you know, whatever draws them to genre or whatever aversion they have to genre as sort of like a snobby way. It seems like everyone can kind of acknowledge that there's something good about Stephen King and at least some of those books. I mean, what is it about him you think that uh, it makes him able to transcend uh, some of these some of these boundaries we have in fandom? Um. You know, I'm not sure. I, I still think there's, you know, a huge snobbery against him simply because he's so famous and he's so like, uh, you know, commercial. Um, but I don't, you know, I don't know what allows him to transcend, you know, you know what you're talking about. I think, uh, you know, the way that he writes his characters, you know, his characters are a lot of like often, you know, um, blue collar or like working class people. Um, and I think that resonates with you know a, a huge percentage of America of the American populace, um, and so that's why I think he's become very popular in general with with you know all across the country and across and around the world. Um, you know the literary community, I think maybe does snub him a little bit. But if you ask him, if you ask any you know most literary you know people who consider themselves literary writers, they um, they, you know, they'll they'll tell you about the merit of Stephen King. I think um, over some other, maybe um, maybe over some other thriller writers. Well, so as a kid, then I know there must have been some Stephen King in here. Who were some of the other writers that were inspiring to you, or maybe start, you know got you trying to emulate some of what they were doing in your own writing? Um, I mean, as far as horror, I like sort of the big ones. I mean, I liked um, Peter Straub. I liked uh, Clive Barker. I mean, I read the um, I read the John Sauls and the Bentley Littles and stuff. I, I, I wasn't really too big of a fan of them. Uh, um, but I felt like Peter Straub was somebody that I really wanted to emulate. I mean, I really love Stephen King, but Peter Straub was on sort of, a, he was talking, he was writing on sort of a different, plain and i don't want to say it was more intellectual because i think that sounds really pretty obnoxious um but it was i don't know it, it was slower i mean like his his books are slower and they take their time they take they take a little bit more time to read 
Um, but they're also very thrilling. And I, you know, I, I really, I really enjoyed his work and I read almost all of his books. I think, um, ghost story was probably my favorite of his followed very closely by shadowland um but yeah I, peter straub for sure yeah ghost story is one of those books that's been on my shelf for like 10 years and i, I haven't made it to it but i think you, you finally inspired me i'll go pick it up tonight oh you have to read it it's pretty amazing you will not put it down i guarantee you that's exciting to hear so okay <laughs> but okay so as far as your story goes well i mean when did you first start writing in kind of like a serious way uh, well, um, I was in Northern California and I was just sort of working this full-time job for, um, I was making what are called readers were basically just course packets for, uh, UC Berkeley professors. Um, and I was also working nights at this hotel in North Berkeley. Um, and there was really nothing to do. I worked there from seven to 11, three days a week. Um, so there's nothing to do but read. So all I did was read books um, for four hours, you know, during my shifts. Uh, and I remember very vividly one day reading one particular book, which I will not mention um, the name of, but like I read one particular book and I thought I could write this better. <laughs> I think I could do this better. Um, and so I asked my boss at my full-time job if I could use the computers at work because I didn't have a computer back then. Uh, and she said, yes. Yeah. So on the days that I wasn't working at the hotel, I, um, I wrote and uh, at, at, at work on, on, you know, these big blue computers. And um, after like about three months, I, I had like a, a draft of this really, awful novel. I mean, at the time I was like, what, 24 or something like that or 23. Like at the time I didn't think it was awful clearly, but like, you know, I had done it. I'd, I'd written uh, a novel. And so I was, it was really exciting. And at that point I was like, this is what I think I want to do. I think I want to try to write, try to write books. Um, and so I just, that's what I did. Um, and I ended up moving from California to Nebraska, actually. And I was in Nebraska for four years. And I would say Nebraska is the place where, like, I started writing really seriously. Like, this is what I really wanted to do. Um, like, I took some, I, I took a few classes at the University of Nebraska. Um, I hadn't, uh, I hadn't had any creative writing classes before because uh, I had a business degree. Um but, you know, I, I wanted to pursue this. So I, you know, I enrolled at the University of Nebraska. I took a few creative writing classes um, and I went to a um, summer creative writing conference at, at Nebraska. And I ended up meeting a Nebraska author named Ron Hansen, who um, really sort of took me under his wing and said, like, you have something here and you should continue on with it and you should, you know, go to graduate school. And that was just not on my radar. I didn't, I didn't even think about going to graduate school, but once he like urged me to do it, I was like, okay, I guess this is what I'll do. Um, and that's, I mean, from then on, uh, you know, that became my life. Well, so it must be kind of a daunting decision to go from having a business degree, having a job to saying, not only you want to be a professional writer, but you're going to go study for it in Nebraska, which I imagine <laughs> to most people, that's not like sounding that prestigious. I thought you were going to say also that it was a great place where you took it seriously to write just because there's nothing else to do here. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, what, what, what brought you to Nebraska specifically? Uh, um. Well, I knew one person who lived in Lincoln. I had to, I mean, there's a whole other backstory. I was living in Oakland, California, uh, in this group house. I don't know if you know, I mean, like the sort of ethos of Northern California is like very, you know, everyone should, everyone who lives together needs to like be very social. Um, and I live with these four guys in this house in Oakland and I was not very social. I just didn't, it, it, I mean, I, I paid my rent. I did everything that I needed to do, but I just, I wasn't a social person with these people. And so they ended up kicking me out I mean, of the house, um, which is like so nuts to me because I was like, I, I mean, I'm contributing. It's just like, just because I'm not talking to everybody all the time. Anyway. Um, so, you know, I had to make a decision if I was going to stay in the Bay area or if I was going to like 
move somewhere. And I knew, again, I knew one person in Lincoln, Nebraska, and I was like, you know, I'm, I need to, I want to really focus on writing and I want to focus in a place where I'm not going to be very distracted. Um, and that's where, why I, that's why I came to Lincoln because I knew I wasn't going to be really distracted. I mean, I didn't want to go home. I grew up in North Dakota. I didn't want to go back there. I knew I wouldn't be distracted there as well, but I just didn't want to go back. Um, so I thought I'd try Nebraska and then, um, you know, it worked. It was, it was, it was great actually. <laughs> well, it, I mean, most people in the Midwest, it's kind of like a dream to make it to one of the coasts and a lot of people never do. And they always maybe talk about it or what they would have done. So you made it from North Dakota to California. Did it feel like a defeat in some way to come back to the Midwest? Oh, not at all. I mean, I knew I wasn't going to stay in Nebraska for the rest of my life. I mean, I ended up going to graduate school in Iowa, so only one state over. So I, it's like, I, I, you know, I didn't have any qualms about like, you know, coming back to the Midwest. It was a little, it was, I mean, I guess I was in my 20s. So maybe I did have more qualms than I do now. Um, but yeah, I do remember coming back to Nebraska, having spent like, uh, a few years in California and having a sort of like, <laughs> I mean, upturned nose at a few things, even though I'd grown up in, you know, in North Dakota. Um, but I mean, that that faded quickly. Uh, and then, you know, then I went to graduate school in Iowa. And then, you know, and then, you know, I've lived on both coasts. And like, I don't really have, I mean, I don't, I don't, I mean, I don't know, people are people everywhere. Yeah, it's not. <laughs> well, we we have a lot of thought. Those, but especially people in the Midwest who haven't been to a coast in any meaningful way, uh, you know, it's 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 easy to sort of otherize the the or or romanticize the coast and the people who go there, get there, and succeed there. But okay, so I so the first stuff you're writing though, I mean, is it is it genre? I mean, are are you playing with genre? Are you trying to move in a more literary direction since you're going the grad school way? And it seems like my perception of grad school writing programs is that there's more people trying to do literary fiction than genre fiction yeah well i started writing genre i wanted to become a horror writer um and so i wrote two novels um neither of them were very good but like um there are two novels and they were both securely in the horror genre um but when i when i moved to nebraska i and I, and I took this conference and met Ron Hansen, um, I thought like, maybe I should try writing more literary stuff. Um, and so I did, I wrote, I, I wrote uh, a novel that was, I guess, purely quote unquote literary. Um, and that's what I used to apply to graduate schools. And then when I, when I went to graduate school, I pretty much just wrote literary fiction again, which was what I was reading at the time too. So it wasn't that big of a stretch. Um, but I mean, I always loved horror. I just wasn't, I, I just wasn't reading or writing it for, for a while. Um, I was just, you know, uh, but I, you know, I don't know. I just, I just wrote this thing for crime reads about this and like the, the way that we pigeonhole uh, or categorize certain, you know, certain books as either genre or literary. And I think a lot of that is kind of BS to be honest, um, because there are certainly literary luminaries that that write what I would just consider horror. And there are certainly like people known for horror who write, you know, beautiful stories um, that are not, that don't have blood and guts. So, I mean, the, the, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to like just pigeonhole people into like one category, even though I understand why people do. Um, I just don't particularly love it. If you're just joining us, I'm talking today with James Hahn Manson, author of the new novel Reprieve, which is available wherever you get books. Join the conversation on social media using the hashtag Riverside Chats. Were you, were you, when you were in Nebraska, I mean, like I kind of mentioned at the very beginning, a lot of people portray Nebraska, like Alexander Payne kind of gets the, the general Nebraska. He's, he's like sort of the storyteller of Nebraska, and it's this sort of quirky place of sort of harmless people failing at things is usually his portrayal. Um, and you, you seem to have, I don't know, were you soaking in kind of like the scary subtext of a lot of what was going on in Nebraska? Or, I mean, was is there anything about Nebraska in particular that made it the obvious setting for Reprieve? Well, yeah. I mean, I think Nebraska is 
spooky. I think like <laughs> I think a lot of the central Midwestern states like Nebraska and Kansas, um, because you have like in Iowa, I would say you have like these um, these long roads that have just, you know, cornfields for miles and miles and miles. And I think that's scary. I think that's spooky. I think that landscape in general is spooky. I mean, I grew up in North Dakota where we have wheat fields, but wheat fields are not the same as cornfields, you know, and we, and we don't even have wheat fields everywhere. We just have like flat land. I mean, and that's not really as scary as like cornfields. I think cornfields, I mean, I think there, I mean, there's a lot of reasons they're scary, um, but I think, you know, they're, they're scary because you can, you can hide in them. I mean, there's a reason there's corn mazes because like, you know, people can jump out at you. And then, I mean, I don't know. I just think, I think, uh, I think the middle, um, the middle, uh, middle America, as far as like the middle, middle America is, can be very spooky place. Well, it's so there's kind of two dimensions there that come up in the book, right? So there's sort of like the physical dimension, the landscape, the atmosphere of just being in the state. But then also, you know, the racial dimension is a big part of the book as well. So, I mean, was that something that comes from growing up in North Dakota that you're sort of transplanting to Lincoln for the book? Yeah, I mean, the I guess the biggest racial dimension in terms of like, you know, people coming to the Midwest who are not white um, happens with Kendra. I mean, Kendra comes from uh, DC, which is, you know, primarily black to, you know, a to Lincoln, which is, I think only has like a 3% black population. And so yeah, there, there's, there's that sort of horror that 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 you live being someone that's so um, conspicuous wherever you go. And that is certainly something that I I, you know, experienced in North Dakota. I mean, I was conspicuous wherever I went um, in school, you know, outside of school everywhere, just because I was an Asian person in North Dakota. So uh, there's that. There's also, you know, JD, who's um, a, a Thai student who comes to Nebraska for school. Um, he doesn't really know what to expect. He has no idea that where he's going is going to be so white. And so like his reaction to Nebraska is is more of like a curiosity because he doesn't really understand um I don't know the demographic makeup of of the country itself and so a lot of that is a lot of uh what he experiences is is surprising to him well it seems like you're also kind of exploring the the scariness of a certain type of whiteness whether that's in the in the form of John Forrester or in the you know in in the people that he interacts with, right? Of sort of like whiteness becomes you know I I hate to make this too literary. I've, I've tried to I read Moby Dick at some point and it really blew my mind and I like it. and I feel like I every time I have an author on here I'm always like so this is kind of a riff on Moby Dick at some point, right? And they're usually like no, not really, um, but just <laughs> kind of that horror of whiteness and the way people what what they see in it, what they value in it, the way they kind of chase it, all of that that Melville sort of is playing with. It seems like I, I don't know. I I feel like I see some of that that I don't know that that abstract horror of what it means to be white and how we re- relate to that or don't relate to that. I mean, that seems like it's a specter kind of over reprieve as well. Is that anything you, that was on your mind? Oh, for sure. You know, whiteness is definitely looming over everything and it's sort of embodied in John Forrester, um, you know, and, and it seeps into the character of Leonard and then Leonard becomes sort of this uh, vehicle for John Forrester's, you know, you know, gross behaviors. Um, yeah. So I, I mean, for sure, when I was, when I was writing this, I knew that whiteness was going to be a big, uh, it was going to play a big role um, just thematically in, in the book. Um, and not just whiteness in Nebraska, but like, you know, white privilege uh, overseas and how, uh, you know, whiteness seeps into um people's behaviors and people's desires, uh, uh, you know, who aren't white, you know, that's through the character of JD. Um, but yeah, so for sure, that was that, that thematic element was something that I, that was important to me. Was, was John Forrester, was there some kind of basis for him that inspired you to create the character like that? Or is he kind of an amalgam of just gross people that we have in our culture? 
<laughs> yeah, well, um, I'm trying to think of how I can word this without actually like saying particular people. When I was, uh, when I was researching full contact haunts, um, there are a few proprietors that I spoke to, proprietors of full contact haunts. Um, and I wouldn't say that John Forster's amalgamation of, of all of them that I talked to, but a few of them that I talked to had certain characteristics that were definitely very much present in the character that, uh, that became John Forrester. Um, it takes a certain type of personality to want to create these haunts because essentially you are hurting people. Um, even if it's just light hurt, which most of them are, most of them aren't like, uh, most of them don't, you know, result in like severe, you know, damage to people, but there are a few that do. Um, and it, I think it takes a certain personality to want to construct something like that. Um, yeah, I yeah, mean, so kind, oh, sorry, I didn't ahead. mean to cut you off. I, I was, I was going to say, I mean, how did you come across the idea of merging some of these ideas about race, about whiteness, about America, you know, geographically, personally, growing up, all of that mixed with uh, the idea of the whole, the full body haunt or haunted houses or escape rooms? I mean, when did, when did those ideas merge for you? Yeah, well, when I started this book, I uh, originally had no intention of writing uh, a book about a full contact haunt. Well, actually, uh, let me let me rephrase that. So when I started this book, I wanted to write a book about racial fetishism. I hadn't read much about, uh, especially in fiction, and I wanted to illuminate it somehow through my own work. Um, so I, I did all this research on Thailand because in Thailand, you know, this fetishism is on uh, such brazen display, especially in the sex tourism industry. Um, you know, so I went to Thailand, you know, I did a whole bunch of research on Thailand. I started writing a book specifically on Thailand uh, and more specifically on uh, the um, sex tourism that, that happens in like Bangkok and Pattaya and, you know, to a lesser extent, Chiang Mai. Um, so I, yeah, so I, I was writing this book uh, and you know, I was getting pretty deep into it. And while I was writing this book, I was also um, researching full contact haunts. And the reason I got into full contact haunts or become interested in them was simply because I was uh, scrolling through YouTube and I found a, a video of a full contact haunt and I became really obsessed with it. I was like, I can't believe people actually go to these things. I can't believe people actually... Uh, you know, construct these things. Um, so I was like, I want to write about this. So for a while, I had two separate stories going. I had the full contact on story um, with John Forrester. And then I had the Thailand story, um, which JD was a, was a big part of. Um, somewhere along the way, though, and pretty early on, actually, but somewhere along the way, uh, I realized that it was one novel, that it um, that thematically it just made more sense for me to uh, make this one novel because, you know, racial fetishism and, you know, horror, it, it just goes hand in hand because with it, what, if you're, if you're fetishizing someone, essentially you're stripping them of humanity. Um, you're whittling them down to, you know, your preconceived notions of their culture. You're just essentially saying they're not human, but they're what you think of, their culture and, and that's all they are. And with horror, it's kind of the same thing. In order to enjoy horror, you need to strip the victims of their humanity. Otherwise, um, it's very, very hard to watch. Uh, I mean, unless you're like, you know, sadistic or, or sociopath or some sort, it's, you cannot enjoy horror and like imbue humanity completely with, um, with the characters getting slaughtered. Uh, so because they had such uh, strong thematic ties, I thought, you know, it would be it would be best if I combined the two stories. And that's what I did. I mean, plot wise, it was it took a lot of fancy footwork and a lot of revision, um, but it just made so much sense to me to do it. Um, and I'm happy with how it turned out. Um, and I'm glad the two stories, two stories merged that way. I will say, though, that. Uh, that a lot of the Thai stuff got chopped. There is like a whole bunch of stuff that 
that was in that uh, initial novel that is no longer there. Well, so, yeah, I mean, it makes sense to me then that you the Leonard story is horrific on its own and kind of scary and creepy for a lot of reasons. But then you were able to sort of scratch that itch then of horror, right? So you didn't set out then to write necessarily a horror genre book necessarily so much as something, you know, the, the whole Thailand uh, sex tourism is horrific in its own way. But was it sort of like returning to horror? Was that sort of like an exciting feeling for you to be able to bring back some of that genre you'd started writing with? Oh, yeah, it was so much fun. <laughs> it was so much fun writing like the cells in the in the book. Um, I realized, you know, this is stuff that I I hadn't I hadn't written in so long. I hadn't written anything, you know, horrific in so long. Um, and I finally got to just let my imagination go wild. And yeah, it was a it was a blast writing that. Um, I do think, you know, the, the book is it, is being called literary horror. Um, and I think a lot of people just think, you know, it's a horror novel. Uh, I will say this, that like, if you're expecting like an unrelenting gore fest, you're in for uh, a disappointment because that's just not, that's not, that's not what it is. Um, it's definitely more of a character study uh, than anything. Um, but there is, you know, the horror elements are there, uh, but they're not, maybe as explicit as some people expect them to be, you know. I'm talking today with James Hahn Matson about his new horror novel, Reprieve, which is available now wherever you get books. Let us know what you think. Follow Riverside Chats on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. We'll continue my conversation with James Hahn Matson after this break. Hello? Want to be a manchi boy? Listen to Omaha's new goofy food podcast, The Munchie Boys. Every week, we get food from a different local restaurant. Let's go. We munch. Yes, there is munch. And talk about the experience. What we got. Where did we go? We're still there. Two boxes of food. In lighthearted banter. I just jammed the rest of the Mediterranean in my mouth. Meatball-based items. In a way that is both zany. This is going to be crazy. We might end up throwing up. And fun. My hands are burning. Hell yeah. Every episode features an exclusive song. Where we sing about our weekly adventures and feature a different analog synthesizer. It's a synth model. Play the track now. Now. We choose. Sounds like haha bro. Check out Munchie Boys on Spotify, YouTube, streaming or streaming, and most other digital outlets. And welcome back to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock, and I've been doing this show for a little while now. Check out the backlog of Riverside Chats episodes wherever you get podcasts. Subscribe today on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever your favorite app is. I'm talking with James Hahn Madsen about his new horror novel, Reprieve, about a haunted house escape room in Lincoln, Nebraska, where six contestants endure fright after fright until they encounter a real murder. It's out now wherever you get books, and Madsen will be doing an event for the book at Francie and Finch in Lincoln on October 29th. Here's the rest of our conversation. Yeah, I mean, so did you end up going to any of the... You said you did some research talking to people who do the full (laughs) contact haunts. Did you do those or escape rooms to try to prepare yourself to write this? Yeah, no, I had no... I had no desire to do that. I had no desire to be, to go to a full contact haunt. I mean, I've been to plenty of non full contact haunts and they're, you know, they're fun. Um, but I had no desire to like be touched, you know, by people. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, people ask me that a lot, but I just, yeah, the answer is no. I did work for, for a couple years or a couple summers actually for these guys who who actually started a haunt in maryland um in southern maryland actually so i didn't work for them at the haunt they actually owned a winery in in southern maryland too and that's where i work so i mean mostly i just like sat there and poured wine but uh they they gave me like some tips on you know illusions and stuff and and they show they're they're starting a new haunt um in you know in the grassy fields uh where their where their uh winery is they're starting a new haunt they haven't actually 
done a whole lot with it yet, but like they gave me a tour of it and it, uh, of like, you know, the big shed that it's going to be in and it's really creepy and it's going to be amazing. Um, but it's just going to take a few years to construct, I think. Yeah, I actually just uh, I did some work writing a backstory for somebody who's opening. It's like it's not a full body. It's like a haunted Airbnb is the concept. Oh, really? <laughs> so they needed uh, like what's our haunted story? And so uh, they asked if I'd do it and I wrote it. And it's funny because I saw a little bit behind the scenes here. And it's just like all these mundane problems of like logistics of we got the machine that makes knocking noises. Where can we hide it that nobody will know where it's coming from? Nobody will see it. Right. <laughs> or like, you know, the, the moans coming out of the, the vents. Where can we put it so it doesn't sound like a speaker? And it's just funny because it's like it's 100% manipulation, but people love to buy into this stuff, whether they truly do or just kind of want the suggestion to creep them out for a moment. But I mean, do you, I mean, do you, do you still have the capacity to get scared by the suggestion of ghosts or the supernatural or anything like that? By ghosts? No, I'm not sure. scared of ghosts. <laughs> I mean, I don't uh, believe, I don't, I mean, I don't, okay. I, I I believe in, you know, other spirits. I believe in another world. I don't think about it on a daily basis. It, and and the, the fact that spirits are around, um, whether or not they are, I mean, who knows, really, it doesn't, it doesn't uh, scare me at all. I think like, uh, I don't feel like they're malevolent beings that are trying to harm humans. Um, like, you know, that like the media portrays them if, you know, that's what they actually are. Uh, so no, I'm not scared by I'm not scared by ghosts. What scares you? I'm more scared by humans. <laughs> humans. <laughs> humans are way more scary <laughs> than any sort of like paranormal stuff. Um, what scares me? I mean, I don't know. Certain animals scare me. I was telling somebody else this, and and he thought it was really funny that um, I mentioned this. But I've always been really kind of terrified of fish like um i don't know what it is because i grew up in a fishing family like my brother is actually a fisherman um but like just something about them i just feel like they're animals with no souls i mean i love to eat fish <laughs> uh but i just i think fish in general are just kind of freaky and like one of my like biggest nightmares is to be like caught in like surrounded by like a bunch of huge fish until like they suffocate me or something does, i don't know i know that's weird <laughs> but that's like that is one of my biggest fears i mean does that does that come from being in a fishing family did you have some kind of trauma in the water as a kid or something i mean that's a good question i don't remember any sort of trauma in the water but if you if you see pictures of me like when i was a little kid and we had to go on these charter fishing trips all the time um and they'd always like you know, beckoned me over whenever we caught like a big trout or salmon or something. And it would be flopping all over the place and I'd be freaked out. But they'd want to take my picture with this big, huge fish that was almost the size of me. Um, and if you look at those pictures, like my hand is not anywhere near them. They wanted <laughs> me to put my hand like very close to it. So it looked like I was like lifting it up. Um, but like my hand was nowhere near it. I was like, no, get me away. <laughs> well, it's funny because I mean, you mentioned a second ago that they seem like these soulless, weird creatures, but it sounds like there's some empathy in that story, right? Like you're watching this, this creature just get taken out of its home and just flailing around until it maybe dies. Right. I mean, that, that's gotta be kind of scary as a kid to watch that. Well, yeah, I think it's scary in general. I mean, just watching another animal, you know, you know, suffer and like, you know, um, flail around for its life i mean we don't seem to care with fish it's just like that's what they do but like other 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 um animals we certainly care and we'd have more empathy for uh but i don't know yeah i, I don't know what the reason is for that i think i don't like that they have such huge eyes too like disproportionate to their tiny little faces yeah, I, I get that. You know, I, I'll, I'll resist the urge to go back to Moby Dick here and, you know, fear of water and all that. But uh, I, let's jump to it. So you say humans are what scares you primarily when it's not fish. <laughs> and Forrester has a, a quote at some point that I want to read here because I think this, this is kind of a scary worldview, but also I want to get your take on it. So he says, all the things we're taught about respect, ambition, loyalty, honesty, love, 
Fear takes all of those teachings and gorges on them, then spits out the bones. And in my observation, there's only one thing that can triumph over fear, at least temporarily, greed. So, I mean, yeah. do you uh, do you agree with John's take there? What's, what's your stance on that? Yeah. I mean, I don't think these um, full contact haunts would exist if we, I mean... Like there's one that offers like I think twenty thousand dollar reward. I think there, if there's enough money uh, involved, um, we suddenly it's not like we become hero heroic or anything, but the greed takes over and like uh, the the frights and and the and the and the fear kind of become um, mitigated. I guess. I mean, you could see it with the, like the big you know, the big blockbuster of the month or whatever, Squid Game, right? I mean, that's like the whole premise of that. All these people competing for this money um, and basically sacrificing their lives and like choosing the money over their livelihood. And I think that 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 commentary is very true. So, well, yeah, I do believe in it. It's, it's kind of bleak, though, to say that the – I mean, he frames it as the one thing that can triumph over fear is greed. I mean, do, do, you, have a, <laughs> do you have a little nicer of an interpretation, or are, are you as bleak as Forrester on that? Um, I mean, I guess people could say – you could say that love could conquer that, – that could triumph over fear. Um, I think that's true. I think in certain cases that love can tri- triumph over fear. I don't think in John's world that's the case. Uh, but I think like in the real world, yeah, there are certain other things that can conquer um, that can, you know, uh, you know, mitigate fear, I guess. Uh, but I think greed is one of the biggest ones. Uh, and it's sort of I don't want to say that it's universal, but it's very um, it's a very common. I, I think it, it's very common. And I think a, a lot of people would say that they would never do. Uh, like what people did on Squid Game, but like when faced with all of this uh, potential for for money and success, I think you know we'd be surprised at what people do. Yeah, I mean that that's a reason to fear humans over ghosts. I think just right there, right that that tangibility yeah. there. Um, well, so okay, another thing that's going on in the book is, I mean, you have these characters who are villains or villainous in some way, like John Forrester is kind of villainous and Leonard is villainous, but at the same time, it does they feel like humans, they feel like they have some degree of dimension to it. So, I mean, how did you walk that line of having some nuance, some empathy for basically bad people? Yeah. Well, I mean, I could talk about Leonard. I think Leonard is the is a prime example of what you're talking about. I, mean, I think he, I think he comes across at the beginning as a very, um, like, extremely normal type dude, white dude, you know, that lives in Nebraska and is trying to like, and is falling in love for the first time in his life. And I think following that, following the trajectory of that relationship is what. Uh, but what gives him the humanity because he's so worried that that relationship is going to dissolve. I think hopefully as a reader, you're worried that that relationship is going to dissolve too, because you can, you can sense um, underlying, uh, you know, that, that love that he has for Mary, there's also sort of this seething um, toxicity that could emerge uh, should, you know, that stronghold of Mary be, be taken from him. And his story is that that stronghold is taken from him and in, in its place is is this guy uh, John Forrester, who who brings out that that toxicity like that was dormant for uh, you know for for a long time, but because there's like this perfect mix of like that the breakup and John Forrester, uh, it allows it allows this toxicity to uh, emerge from from Leonard. So as far as like just complicating him as a person. I didn't want to like just make him just this um, blanket villain. I wanted to show like how that villainy uh, sort of arose from circumstance and how it became, um, how it didn't necessarily have to be this way, but because of of the circumstances, uh, it just it, it's what happened. If you're just joining us, I'm talking today with James Hahn Madsen, author of the new novel Reprieve, which is available now wherever you get books. Yeah, I mean, how much of that was based on trying to understand these sort of toxic figures we have 
in our in our culture now where it's sort of like loner white guy there's sort of almost it's, it's becoming almost like an archetype of, of a sort where it's like loner white guy who's prone to be radicalized in some way we certainly see it in like the pizza gate or uh, QAnon sort of uh you know the way that that i don't know the way that a community or a sense of meaning is found for this kind of like white guy who is losing a sense of meaning or you know is culturally threatened in some way uh by i don't know diversity or whatever it might be so like how much was that were you trying to understand something that's contemporary in that sense through leonard yeah absolutely i mean i wrote the majority of this book um during the trump administration so that was all around me i mean it wasn't just around me you know, physically, it was it was all over the news, and it, there were stories after story about this. And um, of course, all of that—I mean—that's going to seep into my into my art, and it did through Leonard. Plus, I just know a lot of people like Leonard, and so it wasn't really that difficult to embody that uh, that point of view. Um, but I think what you were saying is is absolutely true. You know, there's this sense of entitlement that comes along with these. Uh, these sort of lonely-ish white men, um, and they feel they feel very threatened by this, uh, you know, by by people's um, emphasis on diversity, uh, and they think that you know any, anything that has to do with diversity now is bad because it, it threatens to take away certain parts of their livelihood and per- certain parts of uh, their own identity, and so they feel like. You know, even though their identity, quote unquote, is still like, you know, basically controlling everything, they they feel like it's not it, they're not going to be the top dog anymore. And so um, with, through Leonard, you know, <clears throat> John is able to get to Leonard um, and, and, and really um, emphasize those insecurities in Leonard. Uh, and then, you know, we see Leonard feeling whole and feeling welcomed and feeling loved in a place like Thailand. Um, and so, yeah, of course, uh, you know, a lot of the stuff that was happening that, you know, you know, that you were, that you were talking about as far as like, you know, the, uh, white man who feels entitled, um, came across through his character. But I mean, so even though it's it's kind of a contemporary anxiety, I mean, I, I don't know that it's entirely new or anything, but it's certainly something that's publicized right now. But you, I mean, you set the book in the '90s. Why was it that you didn't want to set it now? Was it just because just because of the time jump at the end, or surely there's more to it than that? Yeah, I mean, sending it in the '90s was for a few reasons. I mean, uh, you know, I came of age in the '90s. I was like in college and high school in the '90s, and so it was like a nice time time to revisit. Uh, I also thought 90s was just a really interesting time for horror. I thought like it was um, it was flanked by two very big decades. Like you had the 80s slashers and then you had like uh, the 2000s with, um, you know, sort of the torture porn and the found footage stuff. So 90s was like sort of a mishmash of, of that. You had like some really smart horror come out. Um, but then you also had uh, like Scream, which is more like bubblegum. But um really, you know, pretty blockbuster-ish. So those were really the reasons I decided to set it in the 90s. Um, Also because of the Rodney King verdict and all of that stuff going on in the 90s. uh, I wanted to talk about that um, then. And I also wanted to write without technology. You know, I didn't want, like, I didn't really want to talk about texting. I didn't really want people to have cell phones. I think, like, it's just a... It's more fun, I think, sometimes to write um, in analog times than it is to, like, write in digital times. Um, I mean, my last book, my first book was all about, you know, technology. And so I was sort of I was sort of done with writing about that for a little bit. So is uh, is the pendulum going to swing again now? Are you going to go back to tech for the next one? Uh, it, the next one flips. So it's almost like. Uh, a compromise. So it's like part of it takes place in present day and part of it takes place in the eighties actually. So um, I get to flip between digital and analog, which is fun. 
And I don't know, I don't know how much you're ready to talk about the next one, but it sounds like you enjoyed uh, merging some genre elements with literary elements in a way that doesn't have to be, you know, just on one side or the other. Are you going to continue that trend for the next couple books? Yeah, definitely for the next one. Uh, the next one is is about um, there. There are two sort of very distinct stories that take place. Um, one of them, I would say, fits very squarely in genre. The other one, not so much, even though there are little bits of, of genre in there. And yeah, there it's 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 dark. Yeah. I mean, Reprieve ultimately is pretty bleak about the state of the country. I mean, do you do you uh, do you find more? I mean, we talked a little bit about this with John Forrester, but like uh, is is there do you see redemption for the country for some of these issues you've been exploring this heavy stuff that Reprieve is ultimately about? Man, I hope so. It's hard to say. I think like what's coming, what's happening now is really exciting. I think like all of the things that have have been going on for many, many years are suddenly being caught on camera or being like brought to the forefront. Um, And so people are talking about them and they're talking about them um, a lot. And I think these conversations needed to be had happening now. And the fact that they're happening because uh, people are documenting things so much more nowadays, I think is wonderful. You know, um, like I think, you know, police brutality is not has been a thing for a very long time. Um, but like, you know, uh, you know, being able to like see someone being, you know, cops often treat black people nowadays and being able to see that uh, over and over and over in different circumstances on the Internet and different places. You know, I think that really is affecting the way that we we see you know, authority figures in general. And I think that's good. I think uh, that conversation needs to happen. And I think um, it'll, I think it will get better the more we, the more we discuss it. Well, and Reprieve, I think is a, it's a heavy book, but it's also got some of that fun of genre. So I really enjoyed being able to sort of kind of have a Halloween book, but also have things to think about beyond just like, well, that was dumb how they killed the vampire or whatever. <laughs> some, some dumb horror. So no, I think this is great. This was. It was okay. a good conversation. Well, thank you. Yeah, it was, it was great talking to you. It's a it's a good book, and then you are a – sometimes when you talk to horror writers, they they try to be very serious and kind of like brooding and try to, I don't know, like emulate the tone <laughs> of the book. And you, you're a very pleasant person to talk to. So I appreciate that. I appreciate getting to read the book, and uh, thanks for being on the show. Oh, thank you. Riverside Chats is a production of KOS 91.5 FM, Omaha Public Radio. The show is produced and edited by Courtney Bierman. Our original music is written and performed by The Real Zebos. Our artwork is done by Ben Matukowitz. Remember, you can find the backlog of all of these conversations wherever you get podcasts. Subscribe today and please leave us a review. As always, thank you for listening. I'm Tom Nobelock.